As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We are honored to give you the chief global economist at Morgan Stanley. They have a heritage which is defined by Stephen Roach and others over the years. Seth Carpenter joins us uh, this morning. Seth, I'm going to go to the Morgan Stanley way, which is you guys under Roach's leadership codified a visible argument. What is the number one thing your team is arguing about as we enter 2023? Gosh, what sorts of things are we not arguing about? Let me say, I, I, I heard you all just before this segment talking about the ADP data and the, the labor market and whether or not the economy is slowing. And one place where we have um, tried to hold our ground, Ellen Zanger, as you know, is our chief U.S. economist. Uh, she and I have been uh, steadfast in saying we think the economy is clearly slowing, but boy, we're not calling for a recession in 2023. We're still there. Uh, I don't think we're actually in the majority with that view, but the fact that the economy is holding up is is part of our view there. You mentioned the uh, initial jobless claims data. Uh, what we're thinking is going to happen, and this is consistent with the anecdotes from the minutes, is that businesses will try to hoard labor. And so what we're likely to see is slower and slower and slower non-farm payrolls. We'll get tomorrow's data, obviously, where we're looking for about 185,000. Um, but we're looking for a slowing down in hiring. We're not looking for a wave of layoffs. Yeah. Taking out that territory is going to be is, is where we've been. We've alluded to the 70s. You're too young to remember the embarrassing lapels Michael McKee and I wore years ago. What actually happens to our economy, and frankly, the global economy, if we get a Neil Kashkari 5.4%, a Bullard 6.7, whatever percent? Do we all fall apart and die? I mean, we, we move forward, right? Uh, I mean, I do think we move forward, but, uh, you know, we are looking for a soft-ish landing, uh, if I can steal that phrase from Chair Powell. I, I do believe that the committee right now is feeling their way. They are close to being as restrictive as they need to be. It'll be up to the next several data points to figure out exactly when uh, they, they call it quits on hiking. Uh, but then it's going to be a question for them how long to stay restrictive like that. And I think that's the part that the market really needs to internalize is that uh, the Fed is not trying to trash the economy now to bring inflation down next year. They're trying to slow the economy down over a multi-year process. And that really is gonna be the difference, I think, between now uh, and the 70s. And for the record, 
I was alive for um, all of the seven. <laughs> well, Seth, there is this issue of how much do you actually listen to what Fed officials say and do what they say versus take that as signaling that's playing some game theory to try to get the market to a place so that they can then say, look, we're all good and we don't have to raise rates as much as uh, we previously thought. And I say this as Kansas City Fed's Esther George speaks and start talking about how she raised her forecasts for where Fed's rates will ultimately end up. This is kind of what Neil Kashkari was talking about a bit yesterday. Does that guide you in any capacity, do you trust them or do you push back against them with the rest of the market? Uh, so I trust them in the in the following sense. They are talking about what they think they would do based on the availability of information right now. Uh, and so then what we have to do is overlay what we think is actually going to happen with the, the, the actual data, what's going to happen with jobs, what's going to happen with inflation. And if inflation keeps coming off as it has been, and if job creation continues to slow, uh, then I think what they're going to say is, wow, we have got the traction that we wanted from restrictive policy, and we, uh, we're we seeing the slowing that we want, so we'll be, be able to step back. So I, I don't think they're going to get to the heights uh, with the funds rate that some of the members of the committee have pointed to uh, because I think the data will slow enough to give the core of the committee that sort of comfort that they can stop. The problem is, is that the data on the goods inflation has slowed, that you are seeing some disinflation there, but you're not seeing that in jobs. And this is where we let's 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 really uh, end where we began here. This is the big dilemma. Will the Fed keep hiking rates in the face of strong labor market data, even if there are signs of disinflation elsewhere? Yeah, I think if it is st continued very strong labor market, then then I think they they keep going. You know, we're looking for another step down tomorrow, 185. Uh, the ADP data came in. I tend not to look at their numbers, but I do spend time looking at the commentary that comes through, and they are pointing to a little bit of easing of wage pressures as well. So I do think we are seeing signs that we're going mm -hmm. in the right direction, that things are slowing, uh, but there's no sense no. in which right now things are weak. If we went back up to 300 thousand jobs per month instead, then, then there's no question they keep hiking. Before we let you go, Seth, I want to mark a funeral for negative yielding debt. It is gone. <laughs> it is dead. It is over. The last negative yielding coupon has gone. Will the consequences of the end of the negative yielding era be borne out over the next decade, over the next year, or have we already seen it in what we experienced last year? Oh, I think there's I think there's any number of repercussions to come. And if if we're right and the Fed is able to stick with their strategy of not just hiking until they're restricted, but staying there for at least the balance of this year, uh, then then those higher rates are going to be have have an effect for some time to come. I think the other interesting question that will come up and will be a topic of discussion is going to be one of uh, fiscal sustainability, because as those interest right. rates go higher and governments have increased their debt, right. the total interest payment that they're making is going to have to go up as well. Seth, be nice to Ellen Zentner. You know, be just, you know, New Year's resolution. Don't be so argumentative like Steve Roach was years ago. <laughs> Seth Carpenter of the fractious Morgan Stanley team as well. Here's the line from Ellen Zentner over at Morgan Stanley. Financial conditions are too easy, reflecting a misperception among investors of the Fed's reaction function. Let's get Russ Kostrick's view on that, the portfolio manager for the BlackRock Global Allocation Fund. Russ, would you agree with that line from Ellen Zentner and Morgan Stanley? Well, good morning, Jonathan. I think I'd agree with the fact that there's clearly this tension right now within the Federal Reserve. This is not a new thing. This is what derailed the market back in August, where they're concerned about the market getting ahead of itself. 
whether that's a function of the stock market going too high, credit markets getting too tight, there is that concern that if financial conditions ease off too much, is that going to hamper their fight against inflation? And I, I, I look, Russ, where we are, and we have to piece this together. You have the responsibility to piece it together with portfolio allocation. How are you reallocating? So honestly, you know, Tom, we're pretty much going into 23 the way we left 22. Uh, we're not making a major change right now. So what does the portfolio look like? We're underweight equities, we're underweight bonds, we're emphasizing carrying the portfolio because in a market that's range bound, we want to be able to earn some income for our clients. We're focused on quality stocks. Now, I do think we're going to get to a point later in the year, probably in the first half, where we're closer to a Fed pivot. At that point, if valuations are where they are or a bit lower, I think you're going to get a very good tradable bottom. But this is not the point where I think you want to load up on risk. Are the, are the cost cuttings going to be efficacious as every corporation and every sector goes out and recalibrates here, as we see from tech and all that? I, I don't mean to micro call it, but are they going to be efficacious in helping their margins? Are they actually going to have impact? Well, let's start with a couple of things. I mean, Tom, I think you, you raised a very important point, you know, a few minutes ago. You know, big tech is ridiculously profitable. You know, if you look at most of the companies in the NASDAQ 100, particularly the mega cap tech names, their cash flow, their profitability is enormous. Margins are still close to a record high. So, yes, companies are going to try to manage costs that arguably climbed up a little too much during the, the euphoria post-pandemic. But the reality is these are still very profitable companies. We're not talking about 2000 when you had the NASDAQ 100 and barely any profitability. Russ, I can't let you get away with saying the word pivot without really pressing into what that means. You think that with all of this backdrop and the potential pain that we're seeing in terms of layoffs, there will be a pivot. What does pivot mean? Does it mean rate cuts? Does it mean a pause? I think it's more of a pause. I, I think the Fed has been very clear, and again, conditions can change, and they reserve the right to change their minds. But it's not necessarily practical to expect cuts this year. The question is, where, where's the terminal Fed funds rate? Is it five, five and a quarter? Market right now is, uh, you know, forecasting somewhere in the zip code of five percent, or do conditions force them to go much higher than that, to five and a half, five and three quarters? I think that's the question the market right now is trying to resolve. Is you see signs of deceleration and in inflation, as you see some soft in the labor market, and you get clarity around that, that I think is when you get uh, a more tradable bottom in, in financial markets. Can we get to a pivot, Russ, if we don't get a significant sell-off in equities, if we don't get the tightening fin financial conditions that the Fed has been looking for? Yes, I think you can. I, I, I think the Fed is clearly financial conditions are, are front and center. But at the end of the day, they've told us what they're focused on. And if I had to focus on one factor, it's going to be the labor market, because we know that headline inflation is coming down. Uh, goods inflation is coming down. What has been remarkably resilient has been the labor market. And that's where I think the Fed is going to focus, not necessarily on whether the S&P 500 is at 3,700 or 3,900. Russ, can you help me understand what's going on with the labour market? So I looked at the quits rate yesterday, got the jobs report, job openings, quits are up. Quits picked up for the first time since February. That screams confidence in the labour market. Job openings still about 1.7 <clears throat> openings for every single unemployed American. Again, that screams a tight labour market. Then, Russ, I see this news from Salesforce, from Amazon, from others as well. Russ, we're trying to work out, what should I believe here? What the corporations in one industry are telling me or what the official right. data is telling me month on month, week on week? 
Well, I think I think you hit it. It's what it's industry by industry, and that is why this is such a difficult labor market. Absolutely, we're seeing uh, layoffs in tech. Uh, we're seeing softening in parts of the professional uh, class. But if you look at other parts of the labor market, hospitality, restaurants, healthcare, these segments of the economy lost hundreds of thousands of workers during the pandemic that have never come back. They're still missing workers, which is why the quit rate is still high. And it's why the labor market may remain somewhat resilient, at least in those parts of the market that are playing catch up with all of these dislocations that happened during the pandemic. Hey, Russ, this was great. We appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Happy New Year to you and the team. Thank you, sir. Russ Kostrick there Happy of BlackRock. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Tom Forte with us. He's senior research analyst at D.A. Davidson. But it really is, is a guy encyclopedic on what goes on at Amazon, the background story we don't hear of. I love how you end your note. Tom, you talk about revenge travel. Bramo owns that. And you also talk about we're all going to see Taylor Swift. You got to be kidding me. Did Amazon just blow this with a blowout growth track? to the end of the pandemic? Sure. So e-commerce companies in general overestimated demand uh, for the current state of the pandemic. Not just Amazon. You see it at Wayfair. uh, You see it at Shopify. So I think that what what happened was uh, initially when the stores were closed, consumers leaned into e-commerce to such extensive levels that there was an expectation that those levels would hold. And first, what happened is consumers returned to physical stores. Then they had inflation, so they had more money spent on food and on energy. And then they had revenge travel, and then they had Taylor Swift. So I think you are seeing a return to live events. But from Amazon's vantage yeah. point, as well as Wayfair and Shopify's, people are not shopping on e-commerce. And that's a problem. Lisa, this has just shattered the A&R screen on the Bloomberg. There's 55 buys, three holds. And one cell. The street's just violently against what Jesse's doing. Yeah, clearly they uh, they don't see this as being a massive downside. In fact, this might just be just the medicine that Amazon needs to have the same kind of profitability that they're pricing in. I do wonder, though, Tom, 18,000 corporate jobs cut. Does that indicate a much broader wave of job cuts among the rank and file in the months to come? Yes. So I think part of what you're seeing is, so if you look at Salesforce laying off 10,000, you look at, you know, big tech company du jour with more layoffs is that to some extent, there was some element of bloated headcount. 
So you had a very tight job market, especially in the technology area, and you had companies that ramped their headcount very significantly. Some of it was a miscalculation of demand, but I think some of it is turning out to be bloated headcount. So I think that there is a possibility that you could see some margin improvement at Amazon and some of these other big tech companies from scaling back their headcount. But I do think it is worrisome, again, for the current state of demand for e-commerce. This is kind of bizarre to me, Tom. Basically, this is like Tom going to the barbers and asking for a haircut and someone pulls out the tweezers. Tom, this is either a big problem and they're not dealing with it, or it's not a big problem and they're just doing something small. I don't get it. Tom, if they've got 1.5 million people on the books, then what is 18,000? So, so think of it as two ways. Amazon basically has two workforces. The blue-collar workforce that employs at the fulfillment center, they had 100,000 quiet reduction in headcount between the March quarter and June quarter of last year, as they basically didn't hire back uh, on attrition. And then the white-collar workforce. And what we're talking about here is the white-collar workforce, 18,000 jobs instead of 10,000 jobs. And I think that is an indication of softer demand and a greater effort for cost controls. Uh, so two different labor forces in Amazon. Here we're talking more about white-collar job layoffs. That's important clarity, Tom. So can you tell me where the other levers are and whether you think they might have to be pulled in the year ahead? The big challenge for Amazon in the third quarter wasn't that their e-commerce was slowing. It was that their higher margin, higher growth, cloud computing and advertising business were starting to feel the negative impact of a challenging macroeconomic environment. So to the extent that you could see, you see more weakness, then 10,000 could become 18,000, could become 30,000. <clears> uh, we'll see how they continue to manage costs as the demand, especially for cloud computing and advertising, remains in flux in a challenging macro. Tom, what is Jesse gonna do about the ginormous headache, the logistics of the last mile for Amazon. They got all those boxes piled up and it just seems like getting the last mile, getting the last four miles, getting the last 400 yards in New York City is the ultimate battle. Are they going to fix that? I think this is their strength. So if you look at the duopoly of FedEx and UPS, one of my favorite moments in uh, tech was within the last three months when FedEx said, we're about to enter a global recession Second statement, we're raising prices. So I see an opportunity for Amazon to use their first party delivery efforts for all retailers. They could break the duopoly of FedEx and UPS. So I see that as actually an opportunity for Amazon. And I think that that's something that 57% of units sold in Amazon were third party. That could grow to 75% over time. Wow. Wow. Leveraging their delivery effort is what will enable them to do that. That's fascinating. Tom, thanks that's for the detail. Tom this was just brilliant. Classic. A clinic from Tom Forty of DA yeah. Davidson on what he thinks is going to happen with Amazon. We thought we would get some perspective on the madness in Washington now, and there's no one better than Wendy Schiller, who owns a high ground at Brown University on American uh, politics. Wendy, I'm going to cut to the chase. You and I were channeling the great Alan Nevins on Grover Cleveland in a time from another place, and there was a guy from Maine Tom Reed of Bowdoin College, who changed the rules. What did Tsar Reed do in 1885 or whatever that matters to Mr. McCarthy today? 
It's it's very similar. He changed the rules committee. The rules committee is the gateway to put legislation on the floor. And when you get through the rules committee, they determine which amendments you can offer and who can offer them and how long you debate the bill. So Reid basically stacked the deck. He took control as speaker of the rules committee and then gave the rules committee and the steering committee the the opportunity to shape legislation and cut out individual members. And members gave them the power to do that. Precisely what you just mentioned, Tom, the McKinley tariff bill. They all wanted to get it passed. Big industry, Republicans were united. They needed to get it through and they needed a uniform process to squelch all the opposition, particularly from Southern Democrats who wanted free trade. Right. That's not here today. They don't seem to have that kind of agreement in the Republican Party on their singular policy goals. Pelosi had Louise Slaughter. She, with an iron grip, handled the Rules Committee in a McCarthy House does he have a rules committee when maybe Greg Vallier says he's going to give it up to one vote could throw him out of office? This isn't even, this isn't even Pelosi slaughter of five years ago, is it? No, and, but, you know, they're clamoring for more open legislative process, you know, in, in, in the midst of all the opposition and name calling. You know, in, in the Senate, the same thing. The parties have really consolidated leadership. Senators complain they can't do anything on the floor. They can't offer amendments. The legislative process isn't really there anymore for for either chamber. So they're making a valid point that they want a bigger say in what happens. The problem is they don't share the same ideological viewpoint or policy goals, so they will obstruct. And with such a slim margin, it really paralyzes the House. Wendy, the Democrats are remaining quiet probably wisely so, to allow this to play out without their input. I am wondering, though, we had expected after the holidays to hear from President Biden about whether he would run again. He hasn't announced and talked about that at all. When is he going to discuss that more in full? Do you get any scuttlebutt about what's going on on that behind the scenes? Well, Lisa, that's a great question. It seems to me since the State of the Union address will be earlier this year than it was last year, most likely, makes sense to take that unique opportunity, do it as a neutral, you know, bipartisan leader of the country event, uh, and then announce you're going to run. If you do it beforehand, then everything about the State of the Union is tainted by that announcement. So my guess is he waits till after the State of the Union and does announce that he's going to seek the presidency, particularly if the Republicans look like they're in disarray. It really stomps on whatever momentum some of these challengers, like Ron DeSantis, Donald Trump, have going into 2023 uh, to look ahead to 24. Some people would argue the opposite, that President Biden said that he would run again if former President Trump was in the running. Sure, he's in the running, but he's kind of taken a backseat when it comes to leadership, certainly with this latest House Speaker uh, nomination and uh, vote that we've seen go down in D.C. At what point does that factor into what uh, President Biden does? Where does the leadership go for the future in the Democratic Party? Well, that's a really great question. But right now, Biden is like he's got a lead in the sports analogy. He's got a lead in the game. He's sitting on a lead. The, uh, the other team doesn't have their act together. Why would you step off the field? Why would you give up the game? You know, he's going to go forward. He's got some good cabinet members. He's got some good governors in the wings. I think given today's political environment, people can ramp up pretty quickly to run for president. So I don't think it hurts the Democratic Party. And as long as they stay solid and united, that's the message they put forward, while the Republicans appear to be at the moment in disarray. You know, I'm looking at Wendy and the Tuesday lunch bunch at Brown University is something having to do with pizza and Providence. There's the moderates of the Tuesday lunch bunch, now the Republican Governments Committee in Washington. I don't think enough is being said here about what I'm going to call. I know I'm going to get a lot of hate mail on this normal non-MAGA Republicans. How do they move forward? 
Well, and, and Tom, that's a great point because there's 200 of them. You know, McCarthy can say he's conservative and people sort of believe him. But, you know, when you're from California, it's a tough sell <laughs> if it's not 1985 right. to be a you know, really red Republican. But there are 200 Republicans who want McCarthy to be speaker. So how they come to the table, maybe Steve Scalise, you know, second in command. Louisiana Republican is different from Midwestern Republican. Uh, and they all won closer races than they expected. And they want to win again. So I think this is a really big problem for them. They're not just going to lie down and let these 20 exactly. renegades, if you want to call them that, run okay. the show. So this well, both- I don't mean to interrupt, but we're running out of time. If they're not going to lie down, what do they do when this 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 clown show is over? Well, I think that they have to stay stick. What they should do right now is stick together. They shouldn't relent. McCarthy shouldn't quit too soon because that that's their exercise of power. The 200 that want McCarthy shouldn't throw in the towel today or tomorrow. Make this go on. Make them filibuster this for a longer period of time and certainly go out to contributors and say, listen, don't give these people any money anymore, even though that's what they complain they want to be protected from. You know, make sure that you stay solid to signal to them that you're not going to roll over today and you're not going to roll over six months from now. I don't know if they can do it, but that's what what I would recommend to hold their power in the Republican Party in the House. Wendy, a lot of investors try to be politically agnostic. I'm not sure if that's achievable or not, but they at least try. And I think they're probably wondering, watching this play out, when is this consequential for me? Wendy, how long can this go on for before it's truly consequential? I think it can go on for a a long time, actually. Unfortunately, Uh, it's consequential today. You know, when the the leader, the free world, the United States is a leader and and our economic and political powers are tied together. And if one of our chambers is grossly dysfunctional, then the world starts to wonder if they should invest in the United States. So if we want to issue new treasuries to fund that debt, you know, we have to get more stable. So I think it has implications starting today. The rest of the world is having some issues, too, in their legislatures. But nonetheless, uh, it matters today, whether that matters to Matt Gates or Lauren Boebert or, you know, Chip Roy, uh, the people who are leading this charge. Um, I'm not sure. They're not particularly international in their focus. But that's where the business community, to me, has stayed too silent right now. They have to weigh in and they have to say, listen, we give you a lot of money uh, and we want this thing settled. So get it done. Wendy, thank you. Wendy Schiller there of Brand University. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.